name is Indra Sengupta and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Professor Nandini Guptu, uh, this evening. Professor Guptu is an Associate Professor of South Asian Studies in the Oxford Department of International Development and a Fellow at St. Anthony's College. Uh, she has published a number of books. To me, the most important book uh, is the one that came out in 2001, which uh, was called The Politics of the Urban Poor in Early 20th Century India. Uh, and this book was a very important book because it marked a shift in our understanding of the politics of the poor, of the urban poor in India. And in a way, it was a shift away from writing about the working class in terms of uh, you know, strike action against the state to a more wider definition uh, and self-definition of a more amorphous group of the urban poor that defined itself against uh, categories such as caste, class, and, uh, ra uh, religion, and nation, and so on. Now, since then, Nandini has moved away from uh, colonial studies and also from, I might say, uh, working as a historian to, to working on contemporary India. Uh, historians never lose their training, so presumably it is historical in scope, uh, but is uh, on a more uh, contemporary work. Uh, and focuses on uh, basically on social and political and cultural change that has uh, taken place in India and has been taking place in India in the wake of economic liberalization and globalization, which began in India uh, in the early 90s and is still continuing. And her current work, and I think the, the, the new project uh, that she'll be talking on focuses on this, uh, it covers uh, many crucial fields of Indian society uh, or shifts in Indian society, including caste, uh, gender, uh, communal religious politics and so on. So in a way, many of the concerns of the first book uh, sort of continue uh, into uh, this current project uh, through, of course, a number of other works that she has done uh, in the meantime, uh, in between. Uh, and these include, uh, and again, this shift, one can see this shift very clearly between the book that came out in 2001 that I spoke of and her later, more recent publication since 2013. She's edited uh, a volume uh, on uh, uh, enterprise culture in neoliberal India, which came out in 2013, uh, and the persistence of poverty in India in to, uh, 2017. Uh, but in between all this, she also jointly edited uh, a book, a very important book called India and the British Empire in the Oxford series on the, on the British Empire, along with Douglas Pierce. I use this book uh, quite regularly and found, find it remarkably handy uh, for, for kind of work. Uh, the current project, of course, is the one, presumably, that Nandini is going to be uh, speaking about and the topic of the lecture today is also the topic of the new project, uh, which is New Cultures of Work, Youth and Politics in India. So with that, Nandini, I hand the mic over to you. Uh, it's our great pleasure to have you here this evening. Well, thanks very much indeed to, uh, to all of you at uh, the Durban Historical Institute, and particularly to Indra for that generous introduction. Um, and as uh, Indra has warned you, my work is now very much based on contemporary developments in India. So the world of work in India has uh, witnessed significant transformation arising from the country's economic liberal liberalization and globalization since the 1990s. 
This paper explores new cultures of work and the forms of politics that these have engendered. I would like to start with a vignette from my field work to illustrate an important feature of this politics. I was in conversation with a young man who works as a private security guard. I was discussing with him the problems of employment and asked him about potential political solutions. The young man emphatically insisted that he had no faith in politics and that he thought the best way to tackle his employment and other problems, and indeed to contribute to the country, was to keep his head down, concentrate on developing his own skills and capacity, and do the best he can through hard work. This would be preferable, he said, to ruining the country by getting embroiled in opportunistic and corrupt party politics. This included trade unions, that were self-serving organisations, and do little for workers, he argued. This denunciation of formal organised politics and collective action is a familiar trope in India. Additionally and importantly, in this case, and in the case of many of my respondents, the notion of being a good citizen and the idea of civic virtue, and even nationalism or patriotism, are understood not only in terms of abjuring discredited formal politics, but also through the politicization of the personal by asserting personal self-development and self-advancement, that is doing one's own thing and working hard for it, as socially and politically desirable norms. The crafting of individual selves selves, or self-cultivation is seen here to amount to a political act. This also represents an individualization of politics by marking out of the individual as the political actor outside of any collective organization, action or identity, while at the same time, the personal or the private self is conceived as the site of ethical and virtuous political practice. Academic analysis of politics in India has tended to overlook this increasingly important phenomenon of individualized, personalized micropolitics of the self conceived as virtuous and the, and the rejection of formal politics that may be termed radical unpolitics. This is no doubt partly related to the widespread disillusionment with party politics and politicians in India. Importantly, however, the ascendance of individualized and personalized forms of politics is closely as aligned with the recent emergence of new cultures of work. That work is a key site of production of individualized politics may be anticipated from similar processes in the global north associated with new forms of organization of work and management of labor in late capitalism. One is reminded here of the work of Beck, Bauman, Sennett, Lachanuri, and so on. However, the contextual specificity of the nature and dynamics of the seemingly global process of individualization and personalization of politics merits closer investigation. With the decline of trade unions and militant working class political mobilization of an erstwhile era, and the near absence of labor activism in some sectors of the economy, the workplace has lost much of its analytical importance in the study of political action and perception in India. Despite the paucity of collective action, however, the experience of work remains critical to any analysis of political subjectivity and democratic sensibility. Indeed, our understanding of wider democratic politics requires a move away from a sole focus on the realm of electoral and institutional party politics or movement politics and an entry into the workplace. The presence or absence of a democratic culture at the workplace has for long been recognized as a critical factor in either strengthening or undermining democratic participation, civic culture, 
and a subjective sense of political efficacy and competence, uh, for instance, in the work of Robert Dahl, Carol Pateman, etc. Undoubtedly, the disposition of radical unpolitics uh, un relating to new cultures of work can profoundly influence wider democratic politics and political culture. In light of the above, this paper focuses attention on India's new workplaces and work cultures, specifically the rapidly growing services sector. But why the services sector? First, the services sector is currently the most dominant sector in India, accounting for nearly 60% of GDP compared to the share of manufacturing that has stayed stagnant at below 20% for some decades. The services sector is recognized as a key driver of economic growth contributing over 50% to gross value added. The sector covers a wide variety of activities such as trade, communication, finance, insurance, hospitality, tourism, security, social and personal services. Its share of employment has gone up steadily and it employs over 55% of the workforce in urban areas. Secondly, the services sector has been the key area of expansion of employment due to India's much vaunted consumer revolution and the rise of its middle classes since the 1990s. These have resulted in the phenomenal expansion of what Shearing and Stenning have termed mass private property, or privately owned and managed large-scale consumer facilities for public use. These include private hospitals, schools, colleges, leisure and entertainment venues, hotels and hospitality units, large-scale organized retail outlets, and shopping malls. The requirement of maintenance, cleaning, catering, housekeeping, security and safety in such mass private property has led to both an immense surge in demand for suitably trained labour and a radical transformation in the nature of work at the bottom of the urban labour hierarchy with significant innovation in employment practices. Most notably, there has been extensive professionalisation of service work with formal skill training now being imparted to workers even at the lowest rungs of the service sector, such as in maintenance and cleaning. My research focused on this lower end, namely retail assistants, hospitality workers, facility maintenance, cleaning and housekeeping services and private security guards. Today's paper draws material mainly from security work, although also from housekeeping. Of note here is the fact that India's professionalized private security work workforce has grown at an exceptionally fast pace and it is one of the major areas of work that did not exist before economic liberalization. India's private security force is now the largest in the world, employing around 9 million young people, which is five times the size of the formal police force and steadily rising. While the services sector is not distinguished for political activism, yet the nature of work and workplace interactions undoubtedly transform political ideas and attitudes here. This is because the services sector, especially the interactive services sector, has seen the introduction of new cultures of work due to the critical significance and essential presence of the customer or the client within the labor process of service work. This, of course, requires not only tangible skills, but also intangible forms of interactive work and effective labor. This paper concentrates attention on the political significance of emotional labor and soft skills training and practice that are key features of customer care or customer relations in interactive service employment. The focus of soft skills and emotional labor is the individual worker who is now the central subject of managerial control as opposed to workers collectively as in past regimes of industrial work. It is now well recognized that there has been a global shift in labor and workplace management techniques from over-disciplined 
to self-regulation through more psychological and normative control over the mind and behavior of workers. Remolding workers, uh, individual workers' psychology and affect are central features of work in contemporary capitalism as are emotional and communicative skills. Nigel Thrift advanced the notion of soft capitalism, and Eva Illouz has argued that modern corporations now rely less on the calculative rationality of the homo economicus and more on the emotional competence of the homo communicans. Illouz identifies the communicative ethic to be at the heart of the corporation in what she calls emotional capitalism. The focus of emotional capitalism is, of course, the self-fashioning, self-cultivation, and affective disposition of the individual worker. The role of customer care, the use of soft skills and emotional labor have been the subject of much debate and the subject of a very large body of literature. In her pioneering work, Arlie Hochschild and others such as MacDonald and Siriani interpreted emotional labor as an oppressive instrument of capital and a form of imposition of managerial power over workers. Workers have been described as emotional proletariat and argued to have been put in emotional straitjackets that constrain and suppress their authentic self and force them to act out a scripted part, resulting in alienation and corrosion of character, to invoke Richard Sennett's coinage. However, these interpretations have now come to be questioned for advancing a deterministic, instrumentalized understanding of subjectification of workers as an unidirectional process deflecting attention from the reflexivity of labor. For instance, Sarah Bolton argues that workers exercise their agency, discretion, and autonomy in performing emotional labor in complex customer interactions in ways that exceed the managerial mandate. There is also a recognition that the social, psychological, and emotional skills acquired in interactive service work enhance the capacities of workers to serve their own ends at the workplace. Further, Stephen Hughes argues that emotional labor provides empowering tools for emotional reflexivity that in turn helps the, and I quote, emancipation of emotions from corporate attempts to script the management and display of employee feelings, unquote, and even leads to resistance and reinvention of character rather than corrosion. While taking a cue from this literature, this paper goes beyond relationship at work, labor process, and managerial power and instead seeks to comment on the wider impact of emotional labor and soft skills on the political subjectivity of workers and their ideas about power, hierarchy, class, and democracy that are of much wider political significance. The first part of the paper explores how soft skills training concentrates on developing the capacities of individuals and breeds a clientelistic political culture of seeking favors. The second part delves into the political impact of soft skills in fostering a sense of empowered citizenship, as well as engendering a, more, a moral critique of class and hierarchy. So part one, the issue of soft skills has dominated recent discussions in India on employability of poor, unskilled youth with, who have low levels of education. Reports of the National Skill Development Corporation identify the key skills gaps that need to be plugged through training programs in various sectors, notably the services sector. These deficits include the following, and I quote from various documents, poor customer orientation and interaction skills, insufficient energy level when communicating with customers, inadequate behavioral skills such as being polite, inadequate curtsy level, lack of discipline, lack of attitude to hard work, and so on. Government skill training manuals at the very outset 
emphasize mental skills. And I quote again, possession of proper attitudes is one of the most important attributes of a competent person. Without proper attitudes, the performance of a person gets adversely affected. Hence, systematic efforts will be made to develop attitudes during the training program, unquote. Thus, training and counseling in emotional and, and psychosocial competence are now an important practice at workplaces, um, aimed to ensure efficiency and productivity, as well as to augment employability and ultimately to contribute to the economic and social mobility of workers. In line with the above assessment, skills training courses and on-job training and counseling of workers emphasize the need for proper grooming, ethical conduct, and polite behavior. All this is argued to be necessary to earn the respect of polite and civilized people, and thus to enhance one's self-esteem and self-worth, ultimately to get ahead in life. A skill trainer pointed out to his housekeeping students, uh, these are cleaners uh, in corporate offices, uh, shopping malls, and so, so on, so housekeepers. So the trainer points out, and I quote, if you mix with a better class of people, you will need to behave in such a way that you don't become a laughing stock or you don't offend them, unquote. Another, uh, further down the line, he says, will you ever be able to get anywhere in life with uncivilized behavior, unquote. The message was that an unkempt, appear, unkempt appearance and bad manners by the standards of polite society will make workers seem boorish, primitive, and uncivilized. Similarly, adopting conciliatory and supplicating postures rather than aggressive ones, such as crossing one's arms in front when speaking, were emphasized as being necessary to ensure the, that civilized people hold them in high regard, and consequently they will themselves feel confident and proud of themselves. Most importantly, the polished self that workers would thus forge is projected by trainers to be an asset in gaining promotion and career betterment. Status enhancement and even class or social mobility are attributed here to self-improvement in both behavioral and aesthetic corporeal senses, not to mention adopting suitable moral and ethical standards commensurate with the practices and norms of superior classes. Workers are enjoined to inhabit what Colli et al. have called a vocational habitat that orient themselves to a particular set of idealized dispositions. The key here is soft skills as gentrification, or what has been termed achieving, uh, within quotes, traditional middle-classness by Brugelis, Warhurst, and Keep. As pointed out in the analytical literature, middle-classness and forms of appropriate conduct and behavior associated with the superior social orders have come to be defined as a set of skills to be acquired by workers. Middle-classness is seen to consist of ascribed traits that are naturally associated with belonging to a social class and gained through family or community socialization. From this perspective, working classes are naturally and always already deficient in middle-class qualities. Such deficiencies can only be reversed or remedied through specialized corrective soft skill training. The responsibility lies with individuals to transcend their restrictive working class qualities. This entails learning the soft skills to control, manage, and discipline oneself by developing personal skills, including punctuality, discipline, honesty, respect for rules and regulations, responsibility, and accountability. Workers are trained to mold and manage their own personality by imbibing the right kind of motivation, a positive attitude, and the will to want to work hard with efficiency, tenacity, and commitment. 
an aspirational mindset to attain a better life, a robust work ethic, and self-belief are emphasized at all times as the necessary preconditions for individuals to succeed at work in what is depicted as an increasingly complex economy and a demanding labor market. Taken straight from the training curriculum, workers are also given lessons in ethics, integrity, trustworthiness, and reliability. Given the abstract nature of these concepts and the formal terminology to describe them uh, as they appear in the manuals, even when translated in local vernacular, these concepts are usually illustrated with concrete examples, such as resisting the temptation to steal or to act in immoral ways, avoiding cheating or lying. Anger and stress management, as well as avoidance of confrontational or adversarial conduct, are a highly significant part of training and workplace counselling, underpinned by a notion that young people of lower classes are excessively prone to quarrel and conflict. They like to fight, and they are very hot-headed, are frequent refrains emanating from trainers and managers. Much emphasis is therefore placed on controlling one's emotions and developing the skills of self-control and self-management in order to minimize anger, frustration, disillusionment, and the lack of motivation, as well as perfecting the capacity and patience to conform and accept prevailing conditions without questioning or challenging them. Workers are asked to observe the following strategy, and I quote, have a good and confident attitude, accept responsibility for failure, be determined, control your ego and pride, look at everything as exciting, unquote. There are also numerous examples that I can uh, give in discussion, if you like, of how these are actually taught concretely through examples. Workers and trainees are in this way instructed in no uncertain terms to refrain from focusing on external factors as either the source of or the solution to their stress, anger or frustration. They're asked to adopt a strategy to rely on themselves to address these problems. The constant emphasis on managing stress and anger in these ways makes it very clear to the trainees and workers that if one contains one's anger and learns to accept whatever situation they find themselves in, they will not only succeed at work, but also in life. Further, by presenting a congenial persona, they will gain acceptance in upper and middle class society. This singular focus on the self encourages internalization of external problems and valorizes a personalized approach to contending with societal problems. After attending a soft skills training course, one trainee commented, and I quote, in today's world, and note he says world, not work, so in today's world, nothing can be achieved without the X factor, and learning soft skills helps in perfecting the X factor in you, unquote. X factor, of course, refers to one's own unique qualities, by leveraging which one can get, a, get ahead in the world. This comment highlights the critical political implication of soft skills, with the singular emphasis on the self, and the ascendance of a personalized politics of self-cultivation, as we saw at the beginning. As a result, individual efforts to strengthen oneself and self-development can be seen as a form of politics in a personalized mode. A related issue pertains to the notion that success rests on pleasing others. Soft skill training is based on the central tenet of corporate customer care, that the surface ethos is paramount and it is imperative to satisfy customers. Often the culture of service is sought to be elevated with reference to the indigenous virtuous notion of sewa, invoking Mahatma Gandhi or India's enduring cultural heritage of hospitality and service. Corporate as well as individual success is taken to be based on the ability to please and serve, even to the extent that self-worth in soft skills training is measured 
in terms of approbation and appreciation elicited from others by exercising the capacity to influence and please others. After soft skills training, a young man noted that his takeaway message was this, and I quote, you have to be tension-free and kowtow to everyone, unquote. The biting sarcasm and irony of this comment suggests that he had not at all ethically internalized that message, even though he was all too keenly aware that to get ahead in life, that was exactly what he needed to do, kowtow. This drives home the critical political implication of soft skills training uh, in the strategic practice of pleasing others. This encourages a broader political disposition of seeking patronage as a mode of achieving one's goals rather than collective political action. So part two, beyond the workplace. While trainees were acutely aware of the burdensome or subservient dimensions of soft skills practice, many claimed that this was outweighed by some significant gains of a generic nature. Learning how to carry oneself, how to speak in a group or among superior classes, using proper body language, and communication techniques were voted by many to be the most useful lessons learned at the workplace. These were seen to help them in life well beyond work. Many felt they had gained both the ability and the confidence to access new areas of society and the economy that they would not have dared to turn to in the past. They expected or hoped that this would improve their life chances and even enable upward mobility. At various group discussions, security guards and cleaners enthusiastically recounted various experiences of putting soft skills to work, which they say they now practice as a matter of habit. For instance, many noted the benefits of acting in a calm and persuasive manner rather than losing their temper or being aggressive. One security guard spoke of his experience on the crowded commuter train on which he comes to work every morning. In the past, he said, he would ask fellow passengers in a casual and even a tad assertive way to squeeze up on the seat to make space for him to sit. Although he was not deliberately rude or brusque, people rarely obliged. He acted out his previous manner and speech, hey, move up, aimed in the general direction of these, those seated in front of him with no result. He then depicted how he now adopts a soothing voice, makes eye contact with one amenable looking person, softens his body in a forward leaning supplicant posture and speaks in a pleading manner, addressing the targeted person as Dada, using the honorific for an elder brother, or Bhai, addressing of using the term of endearment for a younger sibling, or similar other fictive kinship terms as appropriate for the age and appearance of the person in front. He would then say, and I quote, I have a long way to go and have a hard day's work ahead. Would you mind shifting a bit for me to sit, please? Unquote. He triumphantly declared he now gets to sit 99% of the time. Others mentioned numerous similar anecdotes and experiences in which the lessons of soft skills training on conduct, behavior, and thought and psychology had helped them. These range from eliciting a satisfactory outcome at the municipal office or impressing their child's teacher at school or gaining an enhanced social standing in the neighborhood and even extracting a favorable bargain while shopping. One of them argued that had he gained soft skills training in early life, it would have changed his life chances and he would not even have to become a lowly security guard. He would have been calm and cooperative and thus held down his previous more desirable jobs instead of falling out at the workplace repeatedly. To the vigorous approval of all his colleagues, he proposed that soft skills training should start in the primary school in the same way that environmental science is now compulsorily taught as a relatively new but highly significant and relevant subject for the present day. 
Evidently, when isolated from the humiliating element of soft skills practice for servile behavior at work in customer service, these workers saw soft skills as a highly significant instrument in improving their life chances by beneficially transforming their ability to negotiate the challenges and problems of everyday life. In addition, the beneficiaries of soft skill training perceived themselves as socially better equipped and empowered individuals who can act in decisive and confident ways in the public sphere with an enhanced capacity as citizens with a positive impact on their own lives and those of others. Some spoke of ways in which the intervening or initiate activities in their neighborhood community, for example, such as helping to resolve local disputes amicably or mounting awareness campaigns to solve the problem of local blocked drains with plastic carrier bags and drawing on their lesson of self-responsibility to unclog drains rather than waiting for the municipality to do so. One security guard described the following incident with great pride and a sense of achievement. He was coming to work on his bicycle down a very narrow lane near his house when a rickshaw puller and a car driver embarked on a lengthy altercation due to the car, car bumping into the rickshaw. All traffic and pedestrians stopped and bystanders gathered clogging up the alley and exacerbating the heated debate. The security guard could not pass on his bicycle and he realized to his enormous irritation and anger that he was bound to become late at work with all the attendant consequences of being resoundingly berated by his supervisor and a black mark being put on his record. He said that without the benefit of his soft skill training and practice, he would have joined the melee in a fit of anger, not knowing any other way of dealing with such a situation. Instead, he calmed himself down in a constructive spirit using the well-used breathing technique at work that he had been taught, of course, and he went up to the two main protagonists and spoke politely but firmly to them, deploying all that he had learned and practiced on conciliatory body language, modulated and soothing voice, as well as placatory speech. He explained to them and to the gathered ground in his most authoritative and decisive, as he put it, tension-diffusing and anger-suppressing manner, that their quarrel was impeding everyone on a busy morning, and it would help immensely if they continued the discussion a little way up the road, where there was more space, thus allowing the rest of the people to go about their own business. To his surprise, the crowd melted away, and the two combatants progressed up the road. The security guard clearly felt he had gained the capacity to act and intervene in the public interest, thus casting himself with pride and self-regard, in the role of a capable, active, singular citizen protagonist, armed with key skills that were relevant well beyond the workplace and in everyday public life. Having cast themselves as citizen protagonists, these workers then turned the spotlight on those who were supposed to be the superior, polished and civilized people, whose manner, disposition and norms of conduct are held up as the ideal for emulation and whom the workers are supposed to serve and please. Their scrutiny led them to question and challenge the claims of superiority by the civilized classes. And civilized here are all in scare quotes. Security guards working at a private hospital described a number of incidents which, in their eyes, entirely eroded the moral legitimacy and the authority of the management who represent the superior classes. So eroded the moral legitimacy of the management, for they failed to meet the standards of civilized conduct. In one case, a chunk of ceiling plaster had collapsed in the waiting area for visitors, narrowly missing the relative of a patient, but causing him some minor injury. 
these relatives had already apparently been on, been on edge owing to a previous disagreement with the hospital's accounts department over billing when their patient was already critically ill and unlikely to survive. When the debris of plaster injured one of them, they became very agitated and angry. The security guards gathered in the waiting area to try to calm down the family. While they were trying to do so by apologizing profusely and promising some remedial action, albeit in vague and general terms, some managers suddenly appeared and started to shout at the relatives, accusing them of causing an unnecessary fracas and declaring that the collapse of plaster on the heads of unlucky people could occur anywhere and at any time, and the management was in no way inclined to accept responsibility. This caused the situation to degenerate into violence rapidly, with other visitors joining in the dispute. They started throwing furniture and shouting abuse at the managers, who then hastily beat a retreat, leaving the security guards to handle the situation. The guards ultimately managed to pacify the relatives and stop the conflict, by going down on their knees and with folded hands begging the visitors to calm down by explaining that the noise and disruption was affecting the care and well-being of their own loved ones, the patients. From the perspective of the guards, they explained to me, they too could have reacted aggressively like the managers. Instead, they acted with due consideration and empathy for the already anxious and worried relatives and families and without allowing their ego to get in the way of supplicating to angry visitors. A further incident revealed the management in even worse light. A patient had been brought to this hospital who was found to be dead on arrival. This would normally lead to a police investigation that the management wanted to avoid at all cost. In the corporate interest, the managers asked the guards to ensure that the patient's relatives promptly transported the deceased's body away from the hospital. However, lacking a private vehicle, and unable to hire a taxi easily for a corpse as passenger, the relatives were unable to do so easily and they went off to find a suitable mode of transportation. Meanwhile, as some time elapsed, the managers became increasingly impatient and after a while asked the guards to remove the corpse and leave it outside the hospital gate. The guards found this not only to defy their normal instincts of decency and humanity, but also to be an entirely unwise and hasty move that would escalate the problem. They attempted to persuade the managers that this would draw the attention of the neighborhood population and worsen the situation. However, the managers overruled the guards and ordered them to leave the corpse on the pavement in front of the hospital, leaning against a lamppost. Against their best judgment and instinct, the guards had no choice but to comply. But as they anticipated, a local crowd swiftly gathered and the police and the press followed, creating a situation far worse than would have otherwise been the case. As the guards recounted these incidents, they commented that the managers should have adopted a more level-headed and judicious approach rather than being hasty, aggressive uh, and impulsive, eschewing all civilised hopes and humane considerations. They pointed out that although they themselves lacked formal education or high employment status, they were in fact more intelligent in an emotional sense and therefore morally far superior to these corporate managers. The workers' crit critical evaluation in this way undermined the conceit of civility of the superior classes and challenged the legitimacy of their claims to be civilized members of polite society. This suggests a broader normative democratizing tendency in the self-understanding of workers, overturning the established notions of hierarchy and collapsing the class barrier, not only because of their own ability to lay claims to higher civilized credentials, but also by demolishing the assumptions 
that the superior classes were civilized. In a different setting, security guards working in government offices also reflected on their superiors in a similar manner. They remarked with some irony that it was well known that powerful politicians and bureaucrats failed to meet the yardstick of honesty and integrity, yet the guards were trained with the expectation to meet those supposed civilized standards of not stealing, lying, or cheating, which was prominently listed in their soft skills handbook. More importantly, however, it was the everyday conduct of powerful people, and of course in government uh, offices they're referring to uh, politicians and bureaucrats. So it was the everyday conduct of powerful people that was considered highly deficient, not so much because they were engaged in conflict and con confrontation, which was natural in politics, but because they treated people with utter contempt and without a modicum of respect or consideration. Those in power were seen to be too full of their own sense of importance and cloud, leading them to treat ordinary people as dirt, like in quote, dirt, in quote. As an example, they told me about an old man who had travelled a long distance to see an official. He was left waiting all day in front of the office of the relevant bureaucrat. He did not even go to the lavatory or get food or drink for fear of being absent at the very moment when he would be called to the office. Out of pity, the guards had bought him some snacks and tea during the day. He sat there all day until the offices began to empty out at the end of the day when he learned from a clerk that the officer had left long ago on important business without bothering to see him or informing him that he could not be seen that day. Seeing that the man looked broken and ill, one of the guards um, whose duty shift was coming to an end accompanied him to the railway station and revived him with some food and put him on the train to go back home. This incident was cited as a crying example of the contrasting sensibilities and dispositions of ordinary people like the guards and those in power and authority. A, dis a discussion of this case led to one of the guards to advocate uh, one of the guards to advocate the following, and I quote: "Everybody should have soft skills training, not just us. Important people like this, most of all, they need it more than us. These people don't treat us as humans. We salute them because we have to, but only their rank and post, not the person, never the person. They don't deserve respect." Are they even human themselves? Unquote. Numerous similar, similar occasions were described by uh, guards, corporate housekeeping staff and retail workers in relation to middle-class customers uh, and clients who humiliated and insulted workers and failed to treat them with any respect or consideration in stark contrast to what workplace training had taught them to be the hallmarks of civilized conduct. I've written about this elsewhere, so I will not go into it here. But so now to conclude. In the introduction to this paper, we met the security guard with his personalized and individualized political orientation and his disavowal of formal politics, politics with a big P, if you will. His approach evidently, even not wholly, relates to his experience of work in the interactive service sector. Soft skills training is almost entirely focused on the self, be it personal grooming, everyday behavior, developing personal and interpersonal skills or self-management. Workers are trained to rely on their own inner resources and abilities to engage with everyday life and to take recourse to individualized and internalized coping strategies to respond to problems without engaging with systemic and structural contradictions or engaging in any form of contentious politics. This privileges a politics of the self in, in which workers are enjoined to act on themselves and wage personal or private struggles 
rather than public ones to confront external forces that affect their lives. The self thus becomes the locus of politics, distracting attention from wider forces, be it social, economic, or political. It also inculcates a disposition to accept and adapt to existing conditions. This singular focus on the self encourages internalization of external problems and valorizes a personalized approach to contending with societal problems. This reconfiguration of the meaning and practice of politics at the workplace has implications far beyond for Indian politics. The resilience of India's democratic polity is now widely acknowledged to be a product of the democratic upsurge and increasing democratic political engagement of the poor and lower orders. Developments at the workplace of the kind seen here appear to be encouraging disengagement from big P politics of the most actively political mobilized classes, thus potentially reversing or st stalling the political current of democratization in India. Workplace focus on the individual self as the protagonist of change may also help to explain the lionization of charismatic populist political leaders who are seen to possess unusual personal qualities, the X factor, to lead the country and its people to greater national glory. It may also play an important role in the gradual entrenchment of what has been called post-democracy by Colin Crouch to refer to the passive acceptance of or lack of political contention against the growing control, influence, and normative legitimacy of corporate capitalism in democratic polities due to the widespread acceptance of corporate values through socialization at the workplace, most notably the central idea of self-fashioning. Not surprisingly, perhaps, most workers cited iconic, successful figures, billionaires from India's corporate world, as those who possess unusual personal prowess and who should be set up as idols in one's own striving at self-development. Indeed, the corporate world, even in its lower reaches where these workers are lo located, is seen as a site par excellence of self-cultivation and nurturing the value of, in value of individual mobility and success. These tendencies of disengagement from democratic politics could be reinforced by the second issue seen above, namely the notion that success rests on pleasing others. India has been characterized as a patronage democracy in which citizens rely on individualized patronage relations with politicians to access state resources and services. Workplace culture of currying favor to get ahead feeds into and fortifies this existing political culture of individualized patronage relations and transactional clientelism rather than stimu stimulating collective action or the pursuit of democratic accountability. On the flip side, however, lessons from soft skills are deployed by workers in everyday life, which in turn imparts to them a sense of agency and empowerment as active citizens in the public sphere. It also helps to cultivate the democratizing idea that behavioral change can act to level the playing field by acquiring those habits and practices that enable mobility. Most importantly, as the rules of conduct associated with upper classes become more generalized and come to be practiced more widely, this unleashes a critique of power and hierarchy and gives rise to new discourses about class. Soft skill training defines civility as the key marker of class difference and sets out the norms and standards of what it means to be civilized or polite. As seen above, these are defined variously in terms of the capacity for ethical conduct, persuasion, politeness, 
and being non-conflictual and non-aggressive. Superior class status is projected to be distinguished by refinement and consideration towards others, cooperation, mutual respect, and reciprocity, as expressed and embodied in various forms of behavior and etiquette. However, the superior classes fail to meet these very standards themselves by virtue of treating the workers and others with disrespect and subjecting them to everyday forms of humiliation and subordination. Even more importantly, they lack the very skills and qualities that are supposed to characterize civilized society. Putatively civilized people then fail by their own benchmark of being civilized. If civilization is about polite forms of interaction, ethical conduct, and polished etiquette, then beyond surface veneer, the superior classes fail to prove themselves to be civilized and become open to moral critique by the workers. The lack of civility of superior classes is, of course, not a new emergent, newly emergent phenomenon. However, institutionalized, systematized soft skills training and practice draw relentless attention to these attributes as the key markers of high status and class difference. As a result, the deficit on this precise front is interpreted and understood in a new light. Workers begin to perceive themselves to be better than the so-called civilized classes, whom they watch from close proximity now and find wholly wanting. Soft skills and service work, although aimed to create an individualized client workforce, paradoxically play a critical role in generating a moral critique of the upper classes. This, however, does not imply the rise of oppositional or radical politics, because at the same time, the workplace engenders individualized and personalized politics, clientelism and patronage, and a radical non-political re rejection of formal politics. The consequences of these contradictory developments and how these play out to shape Indian politics are as yet unclear, but may well be one of the contributory factors in the growth of populism as a mode of powerful anti-elitist politics. To end on a note of optimism, though, as a commentator has recently argued, in the post-COVID world, right-wing populist authoritarian in, uh, authoritarianism in India needs to be challenged by more egalitarian left-wing social populism. Such forms of populism could potentially draw upon the growing critique of upper and middle classes at the workplace in India's new cultures of work.